Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded Podcast. This week I'm going to look at the battle for the soul of Australian rugby in the 1900s and discover how the newly born rugby league quickly eclipsed rugby union down under. The catalyst for the change was the 1907 New Zealand Rugby League Tour of Britain led by Albert Baskerville. One of Baskerville's numerous masterstrokes was persuading eastern suburb superstar Dally Messenger to leave rugby union and join the rebel New Zealand League Tour. Baskerville's capture of Messenger, which was only agreed to when Messenger's mother gave her seal of approval, not only gave the tour instant credibility amongst Australian rugby fans, but also unlocked the door for many other Sydney players to ally themselves with the new rugby. When Messenger finally arrived from the long tour in 1908, the first Australian rugby league season was already well underway. Nine clubs started the inaugural New South Wales rugby league season, and the competition went head-to-head with Sydney's Metropolitan Rugby Union, Neither organisation could quite establish dominance over the other, and the attention of the general public was more drawn to representative state and national matches. As the season drew to a close, the battle for supremacy switched to the rugby pitches of Britain, as both the league and the union announced that they would be sending teams to tour Britain, the country that most Australians still called the mother country, in the 1908-1909 British season. The league tourists arrived at Tilbury Docks in September 1908, with a silver-grey kangaroo in tour and became instantly known as the Kangaroos. When the rugby union side arrived, they were initially nicknamed the Rabbits by the English newspapers, but the players apparently objected to being named after what most Australians viewed as an imported pest, so the nickname Wallabies was chosen. Neither tour was a spectacular success. The Wallabies lost to Lanethley, Cardiff, Swansea and Wales, as well as Midland counties in England, a defeat which made them the first modern touring side to lose to an English team. Worse, controversy became an ever-present follower of the tour. Accusations of professionalism, ungentlemanly tactics and the constant reminder of Australian rugby's domestic problems thanks to the presence of the kangaroo tourists were never far from the surface. Scotland and Ireland even refused to play the Wallabies because they suspected the Aussies of the sin of veiled professionalism. It did not help their reputation with the snooty rugby union press that three Wallabies were sent off during the tour including Sid Middleton in the prestigious match with Oxford University. Many in the British press thought that the Wallabies reflected the moral failings of the Australian nation itself. Scottish rugby writer Hamish Stewart even wrote that the Wallabies are sublimely unconscious of their delinquency and are sincerely surprised when accused of unfair practice. For their part, the Australians really were taken by surprise by their treatment. Australian rugby union was nothing if not fiercely loyal to Britain and the Empire and the attacks on the team profoundly upset the Wallabies. The tour manager, James McMahon, complained that, as visitors to the mother country, as representatives of part of the British nation, the players could not understand and were certainly not prepared for such hostility as was shown to them by a section of the press. To cap it all, the tour made a loss of £1,500. It would be almost 40 years before another full Australian side would return to Britain. The one memorable success that the Wallabies did have was one that, at the time, they had little idea of its subsequent importance. They won the Olympic gold medal for rugby by brushing aside Cornwall, the only other team in the tournament, 32 points to three. The Cornish side represented Great Britain by virtue of being that year's English county champions. The Wallabies' entry into the tournament was probably in large part due to the enthusiasm of E.S. Marks, Olympic enthusiast and doyen of Australian amateur sports who had accompanied the Wallabies on tour. 
The match was played more or less to bare benches on a dark afternoon in the Scotch mist, reported the Times. The footballs were kept in a perpetual state of greasiness by their frequent finding of the swimming bath which ran along one of the touchlines. But on the rugby league side, the Kangaroos were no more successful than their union cousins, even with Daly Messenger making his second tour to Britain in two years. It did not help that the mill towns and mining communities of the industrial north of England, the heartland of rugby league, were undergoing one of the worst industrial slumps in a generation. To make matters worse, explained the Yorkshire Post, rain, frost and fog have all united to make the financial success of the tour more questionable. The Kangaroos were also a victim of their own ambition. The tourists played 45 matches over six months, of which the Kangaroos won just 17, and the tour made a loss of £418. James Giltinen, the tour manager and promoter, found himself declared bankrupt when he returned home to Australia. Once the two sides were back home down under, the tide began to turn in favour of league. Despite the lack of success of the two touring sides, the fact that Australia could send two teams to tour Britain at the same time pointed to the extraordinary strength and popularity of the game down under. So, Bill Flegg, an influential official of Eastern Suburbs Rugby League Club, hatched a plot to have the Kangaroos and Wallabies play each other under rugby league rules. The only problem was that the financial failure of the Kangaroo Tour meant that there was little money to attract the Wallaby players. So the New South Wales Rugby League approached Sydney businessman James Joynton-Smith, whose interest in hotels, newspapers and racecourses made him the ideal candidate to underwrite the cost of signing the Wallabies. 14 Wallaby players, including captain Chris McKivitt, eventually signed up. In fact, as many pointed out at the time, this caused the Wallabies to split along class lines, the defectors to league all coming from working class occupations. When the two teams finally met each other, 18,000 people turned up to see what the Sydney press had labelled the match of the century. The crowd was not disappointed. The game flowed from end to end and the Wallabies coped admirably with the new rules, taking an 18-16 lead in with them at half-time. At 26 all with seconds remaining, it was the magical messenger who rescued the day for the Kangaroos, with a deft path that allowed Newtown wigger Frank Cheadle to race through and score in the corner. The conversion failed, but the Kangaroos had snatched a 29-26 victory. The Wallabies won the next two matches, but the Kangaroos won the fourth and final match to tie the series. The balance of power in Australian rugby had been decisively tilted to league. Over the course of the next two seasons, rugby league began to pull away from Union. In 1910, the Sydney Sports Weekly, the referee, commented that The Union game is not regaining its popularity. Matches which formerly attracted from 13,000 to 25,000 people now coax from 1,000 to 2,500. The schism has hit the old game hard. Some of the controllers of rugby union football may not yet be able to thoroughly realise this. Nevertheless, they are now facing a problem which in time may well swell from a small hill to a towering mountain. Not only were the crowds bigger at league games, but importantly... Rugby League had an international dimension that Australian Rugby Union could not match. Regular tours to and from Britain gave League a profile and a meaning for the vast majority of Australians who still thought of themselves as British. In 1910, Jim Lomas led the first Northern Union tour down under, attracting large and enthusiastic crowds wherever they played. The following year, the New Zealand League team toured Australia, and in 1911, the Kangaroos returned to Britain, led by the former Wallaby Chris McKivitt. This time the Kangaroos were successful on and off the field, winning 28 of their 35 matches, but, most importantly, taking the Rugby League Ashes back home with them. Financially, the tour was so profitable, 
in contrast to that first tour, that each player took back a bonus of £178 each. So by the time that Harold Wagstaff's 1914 British Lions reached Australia in May 1914, rugby league was a major football code of Australia's most popular states, New South Wales and Queensland. And, just as in England and New Zealand, it had come to represent not simply a different way of playing rugby, important as that was to those who played and watched it with a passion. It also represented a different view of life from the majority of the people who led the union game. The manager of the 1914 Lions, John Houghton, reflected this when he told the Sydney newspaper that the tourists wanted to propagate their game of rugby league football because they believed it was the people's game. This was even more apparent in Australia than in Britain, where the links between league and the labour movement were deep going. Harry Hoyle, the first president of the New South Wales Rugby League, was a prominent railway workers' union activist and an Australian Labour Party election candidate. Ted Larkin, the league's first full-time secretary, was an elected Labour Party MP. In Queensland, the central figure in the split from rugby union was Jack Feely, the future deputy leader of the Queensland Labour Party and prominent Irish nationalist. In rugby league, such men found a game in their own image. Uniquely for sports teams at the time, the British tourists were always captained and led by working-class men like Lomas and Wagstaff, manual workers from the industrial heartlands of Britain, just as the Australian players and spectators were. For working-class Australians, the new rugby presented an image of Australia the way they hoped it would be, working-class, democratic and meritocratic, at least for white workers. As Horry Miller, Ted Larkin's replacement as the New South Wales Rugby League secretary, would later write, Rugby league is a game for every class and all classes to play. It is not a caste game. Any game which brings together on the field of sport men and boys of every type must be a nation builder. It is essential that every class in a community should understand and appreciate the worth of every other class. This was a philosophy that would be at the heart of rugby league in Australia and everywhere else the game was played. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my name is at Collins Tony. And if you want to dig a bit deeper into the history of rugby and the other football codes, take a look at the Rugby Reloaded website at www.rugbyreloaded.com where you will also find an in-depth preview and a special offer on my new book, How Football Began, a global history of how the world's football codes were born. Until next week, thanks for listening.